Wise Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Hey, welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel, and who knows, maybe even you'll act based on the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights from the guests that I bring on the show every week, Guys Guys Radio. And we've got a great show for you today. We've got our first twofer of 2021. That means we've got two authors on the show. We've got Gerald Zimmerman. We've got James Swallow. Gerald Zimmerman and his partner, Daniel Forrester, have written a book called Relentless, The Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices. And he breaks down the notion that uh, regardless of what type of organization you're involved in, whether it be IBM or the Hells Angels or McDonald's or the Cosa Nostra, whoever, and whatever side of the law you may be on or perceived as being on, because I'm not going to point the finger and say this group is all bad and this group is all good because, you know, corporations have done some not so nice things and uh, some of these other groups have done some things that probably not so bad all the time. So we can't lump them in. So I'm not pointing the finger at any of these groups Although I don't think that the, the drug cartels and the mafia have done a lot of great work. Um, I'm sure there's been some charity done here or there. But anyhow, it's not, about, uh, it's not about who's bad and who's good. It's about the fact that all these organizations, wherever they reside, on which side of the law, good or bad, however they're perceived, they have something in common, and that is the code and structure that they work on. They know their brands. They know how to uh, manage the behavior of their uh, communities. And they know how to reward and maintain personnel. And all the successful organizations, uh, whether it be a big corporation or one of these uh, kind of uh, quote-unquote more outlaw type organizations, however they behave, they have a lot of similarities in that they have a template for how they move their organizations ahead, and how they maintain. So that's Gerald R. Zimmerman. We're going to bring him on here, as well as James Swallow. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is called Ghost. It's part of a series, the Mark Dane series, which has been called Britain's Answer to Jason Bourne. Fast, moving, and fun. Again, he's a New York Times bestseller, and what he brings to the party is he's really all about story, and we're going to talk about what it means to incorporate story, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. And James has written everything from TV to video games, uh, screenplays, etc. He's just done it all, and he's an amazing guy. So we're going to get into that and really what it takes to be a writer in today's marketplace. It's not easy, but there's always opportunities, and uh, you really have to want it uh, if, you, if you're going to pursue that type of career. So two great guests on Guys Guys Radio. So what else is happening out there? Well, we're into 2021, and in many ways, it feels like a continuation of 2020 because you know what? It is. It's just you flip the page and it's January. doesn't mean that everything instantly changes. And I think a lot of people are hung up on the fact that, oh, we're in the age of Aquarius now. And there's so many different calendars to look at, and whether it's astrology or Mayan calendar and Aztec calendar or whatever. And it, it, they they seem to all contradict each other in terms of when changes are supposed to occur. But everything I've been reading astrologically seems to be saying that, that you know some big changes are going on. And it's like it's I think it's an evolution, but some are saying it's more 
revolutionary in terms of the consciousness of the planet. Well, I haven't seen the big change yet, and I think the real test is to go inside and uh, handle it on your own. Uh, you, you, you can't change the world until you change yourself. You can't love others until you love yourself. So I think one of the uh, maybe a bright spot, if you will, and forgive me for saying that with the, with the shutdowns and the pandemic and everything, is that we some of us have had the time uh, to go inside, uh, not just literally, but uh, also into ourselves and work on ourselves and ask ourselves kind of, okay, who am I? Why am I here? How can I serve? What do I need to know about myself? What do I need to do better? And maybe take on some type of a new protocol, add something. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's yoga. I got a, a little uh, a trampoline. It's not like a trampoline like you would see in a circus, but it's very small and it's a circular and it has a, like a guardrail on it. So you hold it and you, you can do it in your, uh, you can do it in your flat. And it's very good for the lymphatic system. And uh, they say that 15 minutes on the trampoline is like running for an hour. And it doesn't have the same shock on your system, the same stress on your bone structure, etc. So it's pretty good. And you can do it at home, regardless of the weather. So that's adding a protocol. So my point is, I think we can all find some ways of bettering ourselves, even though there's a lot of bad stuff going on out there and a lot of challenges. So something to consider. Uh, look for the bright side, look for the opportunities, look for the opening to work on yourself because the better you are, the better off your world's going to be and the better off you can be to help the world become a better place. So Guys Guys Radio, we've got two great guests. We're going to start right now. It's Guys Guy Radio. very special guest today. His name is Gerald R. Uh, L. Zimmerman, PhD, and he's written this book along with his writing partner, Daniel P. Forrest. It's called Relentless, The Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices, and it's really fascinating. It's about how a lot of illegal organizations have crafted a very successful business uh, to create an enduring brand, culture, and success, while so many of uh, public and privately legal organizations have come crashing down, particularly this past year or so. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about Gerald. He is a PhD, a globally recognized microeconomist, and author of seven books, and he has taught organizational economics, accounting, and finance at the University of Rochester's Simon Business School for more than 40 years. He's also the founding editor of the Journal of Accounting and Economics, He's published 50, uh, 50 published studies and books and including textbooks on economics and accounting. He's just an absolute whiz uh, economically and understanding business. And I'm very pleased that he's on the show. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Gerald Jerry Zimmerman, Ph.D. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and looking forward to our interview. Okay, let's start at the beginning then, and we'll get into, I want you to also weave in uh, who Daniel is and why he was so important to this book, but what was the aha moment when you realized the fact that the most enduring criminal enterprises all share a success template that provides successful business practices and supporting corporate cultures, and how that is different from many uh, traditional companies? The aha moment came when I asked the question, what allows these organizations, these criminal enterprises to survive much, much longer than uh, iconic br brands like the Kodaks and the Blockbusters, in spite of the fact 
that you have enormous law enforcement resources devoted to trying to put them out of business. But I guess the real aha moment came when you realized that these criminal organizations can't use our traditional institutions of capitalism, like banks and insurance companies, and in particular, the courts. They can't go to federal district court and sue over a bad drug deal. So they have to have alternative mechanisms that allow them to function, uh, to move money around, and all of the other things that we take for granted. How did you and Daniel, uh, your co-author, he's the CEO of True, T-H-R-U-U-E, an expert consultancy that assists leaders in bridging the gap between corporate culture and corporate strategy. So he works with CEOs of traditional businesses. How did you guys come together and say, hey, there's a book here that we should collaborate on? Well, it started when Daniel was a student in, in the MBA program at the University of Rochester, and he was one of my students. Uh, about uh, four or five years ago, he gave me a call. He had a client that he was struggling with helping, and he wanted my input. And so I had a number of conversations with him about that client and a couple of other clients. And uh, I mentioned the book to him, and he said, oh, my gosh, send it to me. So uh, it was a very, very early draft, and uh, uh, Daniel was instrumental in putting the corporate culture piece into the books. So there's really four things that we look at in the corporate governance uh, besides culture is one of them. It's also how do they assign decision-making responsibility? Who does what in the organization? Who becomes a shooter and who be who runs the gambling operation? Uh, how do you measure these people's performance and how are they compensated? And these are all the same questions that legal companies have to grapple with. It's interesting that you took on the American mafia, the Sinaloa cartel, drug cartel, the Hells Angels, and then also the gangs, the Crips and the Bloods. What uh, what did you learn that was similar? Um, and how did, how did you do your research on those? And what, what did you find in terms of similarities and differences between those four illegal or organizations before we get to the more legal organizations? Uh, the the research came from a, a few interviews with uh, district attorneys uh, and uh, uh, U.S. attorneys and some uh, criminal defense attorneys. But the vast bulk of the research came from published sources, books by Joe Bonanno and uh, Sonny Barger, who started the Hell's Angels. And these were very detailed descriptions of, of how these organizations worked. And uh, there's a lot written on crime. There's thousands of crime books, but most of them are, are really just the history and who got whacked and who did what to whom. And very few of these studies actually dig down into how do these criminals run their organizations. Do you think that there was any... Uh uh, mindfulness on their part as to setting these four pillars or being aware that they were in place and looking what other enterprises had done uh, in the past uh, that, that they could build off of? In other words, do the Crips look at what uh, the Hells Angels have done or is that totally random and coincidental? I think it's more the latter than the former. The, um, the American Mafia uh, has its roots back in the Sicilian mafias back in the late 1800s. 
And so when the Sicilian mafioso came, immigrated to primarily New York, uh, there were these other Italian-American gangs uh, that were just doing petty crime. Uh, but the the culture of the Italian and Sicilian mafia, namely the code of silence, omerta, uh, the clan, the distrust of governments, uh, that was all part of their DNA. Uh, and uh, the American mafia, before the 20s, they were just doing street level gang, uh, gang kinds of crimes. Uh, it was really prohibition and the unintended consequence of prohibition in the United States that created the demand for alcohol. And it was these gangs that started supplying bootlegging and smuggling. And uh, the ones that were good at it survived and the ones that didn't faded away. Economists call this economic Darwinism. It's mm -hmm. the survival of the fittest, and that's what a competitive market gives us. Okay. Uh, my special guest, Gerald L. Zimmerman, Ph.D., the name of the book is Relentless, The Forensics of Mobsters' Business Practices, which he wrote with his writing partner, Daniel P. Forrester. So um, how about some mainstream corporations that are doing this well and others that have really uh, failed it? Well, you know, there's uh, just kind of an endless list of uh, companies that have uh, run into trouble. Uh, one of the more recent ones is Wells Fargo and all of the problems they had with their branch banking operations. They had an incentive system that gave the branch managers big bonuses if they added new accounts. And some of these people were not very ethical, and they were opening accounts and uh, customers' names without their permission. And when uh, uh, this all came to light, uh, there were huge fines. A lot of people got fired. That's one example of a company that, that failed. Um, another example of one is Kodak, which they were, as you know, the world's leading photographic company, but they couldn't adapt to the times. Uh, even though they were in digital imaging, they couldn't compete with uh, the uh, Canons and the Nikons and eventually the smartphones. They okay. couldn't adapt, whereas you look at the American Mafia or the Sinaloa cartel, they were constantly adapting as, as new opportunities emerged in their marketplace. Let me ask you a question about this. So the four pillars though the culture, the decision making and the, the rules, uh, measurement and then the compensation. Um, let's take this, let's take uh, Kodak as an example. They, they didn't keep up with the times from a technology standpoint or having their pulse on the marketplace. But uh, could you argue that they knew their culture and their decision making and their measurement and their dollars uh, compensation, but they just didn't keep up with the uh, technology and the way the market and uh, was moving? Well, they tried. I mean, the, one, one of the benefits of being in Rochester for 45 years and teaching at the Simon School was I learned an awful lot about Kodak. I had sure. a lot of Kodak students. It turns out the Kodak was not an imaging company. They were a coding company. They were really good at taking and putting down layers of chemicals on either film or on paper, and they were super at that. But when it came to digital imaging, even though they had top-notch scientists, they didn't have an organization of electrical engineers and uh, people 
that could compete with the uh, the Sony's, the Panasonic's. Uh, you know, they tried to do a, come out with a camcorder. At one point in time, Kodak had a over a $1 billion business in Super 8 movie films. I assume that your baby pictures are probably on those. Of course. That entire market went away in two years, even though they came out with a product that it was inferior to what uh, the uh, the Sony camcorders could do. So is this, uh, Gerald, is this a... Uh part of the culture then of the decision making and rule making the measurements or the compensation it sounds like there's the culture drives a lot of this in terms of how how the how the uh, corporation is going to adapt well you know they knew that digital imaging was coming and they tried to adapt uh, they they came out with their own uh, digital cameras but uh, you have to, in, in the highly competitive world that we're in, it's hard to take a 40,000 or 50,000 person organization that's good, that's very, very good at coding stuff and suddenly turn all of these 45,000 people into an organization that can compete with the company that that's all they've done for the last 20 years is electronics. It. So it, it's really uh, destructive capitalism that uh, these companies, when their technology becomes obsolete, the vast majority of them go out of business. Mm -hmm. We see that with Blockbuster. For a contextual standpoint and basis, point to where these organizations that failed have gone wrong. So let's take Blockbuster. You've got the culture, decision-making, measurement, and the compensation. I, again, they didn't keep up with uh, you know, the changing in the... The, the, the consumer usage landscape because they could get things digitally instead of having to go rent a, rent a video. So which of those four pillars did they fail on? Well, I wouldn't say they failed on any of them. Uh, it's just the way markets work in capitalism. Uh, you look at what's going on uh, with Barnes & Noble now. Uh, you know, they're struggling, uh, and they just decided to change the way their corporate uh, tasks are assigned. It used to be that uh, the corporate headquarters told every bookstore exactly what books to carry, uh, which uh, w didn't work in different parts of the country. So they just changed their task assignments and they're giving all of their store managers discretion to carry whatever books they think they can sell. So they're trying to adapt this. Now, whether it's going to work or not, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but um, uh, you know, companies thrash around a lot. Look at Sears. Sears was an iconic brand, but they, the market put them out of business. It wasn't that their, their, their four pillars were wrong. It's just that uh, bad things happen uh, with uh, new technologies when they come along. Could it be, you know, when you look at the uh, criminal enterprises that you studied, that the, the criminal enterprises have more uh, elasticity in, in being able to make changes because they have to, they can do whatever they want. They can do things illegally. They can whack people, whereas pr public corporations are beholden to shareholder value. Um, is, it a, is it an apples and oranges type of thing, or, or are the basic four pillar tenants even more important in a criminal organization? Well, I would argue that they're critically important in all organizations. Okay. You're absolutely right, and it's a very good point that uh, the criminals have a lot more 
freedom to use violence. Uh, and that gives them a lot of leverage. On the other hand, if they use too much violence, it's very counterproductive. And we see that going on among the Mexican cartels now, that the violence is destroying not just their cartels, but the whole fabric of the Mexican uh, environment. This is Guys Guys Radio. We're talking about the four pillars for successful organizations and how a lot of the crime families really have their act together uh, more so than a lot of uh, legal enterprises. So do you think there's a difference in how the four pillars work for a private uh, public, private versus public cor- corporation versus a startup? Uh, excellent question. And uh, the Every organization has to have a unique set of four pillars uh, that's designed for that particular organization. So the four pillars for Southwest Airlines, they have an incredibly strong culture. uh, And their four pillars differ from the four pillars of, let's say, the Red Cross or the American Mafia. Uh, They all have cultures. Uh, They all have these three things, but you have to tailor them to your unique circumstance. And as your circumstances change, as your environment changes, you have to uh, make changes in the four pillars. So, for example, the American mafia, when they went into and started opening up casinos in Las Vegas, they had to change the rules, uh, which uh, allows every of all of the five New York families to open a casino, whereas before that, uh, the the American mafia had had basically divided the country up into geographic zones, and they would only operate in their assigned zone. How about, and this is kind of the elephant in the room, I've got to ask the question, whether you're a fan or not, the way our president, uh, current president, has been managing his brand, his companies, and now the country, if you will, going from private uh, enterprises to uh, being president. Um, is there a four pillars basis there also? Uh, I think I, I think so. I think that the, um, again, I'm not an expert on Donald Trump or, and the Trump organization, but uh, you know the, the exact same culture that he built in the Trump organization, he's been trying to use to run uh, the country. And uh, he's had various uh, successes and various failures in, in both his, his uh, legal or his, uh, his private practices and now as a public of- official. He's the same guy. Uh, you know, right. he's, he's not very presidential and he likes to sue people. He, he liked to sue people before he became president and he's, he's going out of office doing the same thing. <laughs> That's certainly true. Oh, wow. So if, what would be your advice, Gerald, for an individual or, uh, for instance, I have a, my background's in marketing and advertising. I worked for a lot of different corporations, big, small, private, public, uh, client side, agency side, and your four pillars are spot on. I've seen them and the differences and seen how some companies f- succeed or fail based on how they manage these four pillars. But a lot of people now, they have their own personal brand and their own kind of content, like for me, it's about content and media and Guys Guys Radio, and I have a novel, and I have all my social media, et cetera. What's your advice to people who are kind of creating their own personal brand? How should they 
manage that? And can you use the four pillars there? Or are the four pillars critical to even managing your own personal brand? The, the, the four pillars are really designed when you get into organizations that have multiple people in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if, you know, when, when you have your own personal brand, you, you have one employee and that's yourself. And, and so you really don't have to worry too much about how you compensate yourself and what tasks you do. You do everything. <laughs> but, once you, but once you start adding people to your organization, now you have to you have to attract the right people, you have to retain the right people, and you have to motivate them. And that's where the four pillars come in. Uh, and but but I think that the key point of the book is that people who are successful, even if they're a sole entrepreneur, they have to be relentless and they have to be resilient. And in fact, the interesting thing, is if the viewers go on a website and they type in www.relentless.com, you know what comes up? Hopefully your book. No. What? Amazon. (laughs) It takes you right to Amazon because before Bezos started Amazon, Mm -hmm. he was going to call it Relentless. And so he bought the the domain name uh, Relentless and he still owns it. And so if you want to characterize Bezos, uh, or he characterized himself as Be Relentless, and he's created a, multiple companies that are so customer-focused that they've taken over entire industries, including the publishing industry. You know, it's amazing uh, what that company has done. And if you uh, extrapolate going forward, I mean, he could own half the world in, uh, in 20 years, the way things are going, because they, they not only are making everything that they're selling, but they're selling everything. So they're a marketplace for other manufacturers. They're making their own products that are similar to those. And they have some issues now with their workers. And they're, I think they're trying to not get unionized. So how do you think um, Amazon is managing their four pillars? Obviously very well, because uh, they are the premier uh, retail platform. Uh, again, I've, I haven't really studied Amazon uh, as uh, in, any, in any depth. Uh, you know, you, um, it, it's a, it's a, it, it has so many different work environments. It's so different if you're working in a fulfillment center than if you're working in their cloud-based uh, enterprise solution systems. And so I really don't know anything about the culture, but uh, as an economist, uh, they're winning. And so yes. if they're winning, they're doing something right. And they're winning because not because they have a monopoly, uh, but because they are very good at what they do. Gerald, great interview. Where can we find more about you and get the book? You can go to my website, www.geraldzimmerman.com. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. You're a guys guy. Congratulations to you and Daniel for a fantastic book. Very compelling reading. Very interesting stuff. Very unique. You know, nobody's doing what you're doing with this book. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, I look uh, forward to listening to many more of your podcasts. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Writing fiction is really tough. 
believe me, I've been through the process. I was rejected a hundred times on my first book. And what it did was it taught me how to write a book. And then I got my second book picked up, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which is a rom-com about advertising. So it's out there. But I found James Swallow, uh, and he is he's done everything that any writer would. He's in the right position at the right time, and he's doing all the right things. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a New York Times, Sunday Times, and Amazon number one best-selling author and scriptwriter. Over 15 years' experience in fiction, TV, radio, journalism, new media, video games. It's a really fast-growing area, and if you're a writer, you may, might want to consider that because it sells like crazy. He's also a three-time New York Times best-selling author of more than 35 novels with over 750,000 books in print in nine worldwide territories. He was nominated for the BAFTA for his writing on the critically acclaimed Deuce X. Human Revolution. Uh, his website's uh, jswallow.com, but we'll get into that. But first of all, welcome to Guys Guys Radio, James Swallow, all the way from London, England. Robert, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, I thought we would uh, spend our time talk about a couple things. We'll start with your uh, your Mark Dane books, because you've got a new one out that's a thriller called Ghost. And then we'll get into some of your other works, and then we'll talk about, if we have some time, your, your writing process, because I think people out there would be very interested in that. So let's start out with uh, Ghost, the new book. It's in the Mark Dane series. Um, who is Mark Dane? What does he want? And why can't he get it? Yeah, that's isn't that the eternal question? Why can't we get what we want? <laughs> Mark Dane, um, he is a character I created in, in my original novel in the series, which is uh, Nomad. Ghost is the third book in the series. Nomad was the first. Uh, second one was Exile. Uh, and no matter, uh, Ghost has just recently been released uh, in the in the United States, as you say. He is a kind of reaction to a lot of the action heroes that, frankly, I've been watching for years and years and years. You know, I love action stories. I love action movies. I love action thrillers. You know, I love that kind of that style of storytelling in all the different forms that exists: movies, TV, books, games, everything. But what I was finding was I was watching these stories, and I kept thinking to myself, you know, that the heroes in these narratives as exciting and, and as fun to watch as they are, they're all pretty kind of bulletproof at the end of the day. They were these kind of Teflon-coated, slick guys who would get into these crazy situations, and it would be fun to watch them get through it. But I would find myself thinking, you know, uh, there's never a moment when I thought, is this guy actually going to, you know, is he going to come out of this badly? Is he going to die? You know, I, I never really felt like there was true jeopardy. I always felt these characters were just too good. And so I wanted to write about somebody who kind of had to run to keep up a little bit. You know, a guy who isn't the quickest with a gun. He's not the strongest guy in the room. He's not the one with the fastest quip. You know, somebody who's a little bit more ordinary, who's, but he's thrown into that world of, of action and adventure. And there's a trope that you see if you watch uh, any action movie. You always see the guy in the van. You must have seen that, right? In a movie where you, you've got the hero who is the door kicker and the trigger puller, right? And he's, he's going into the room and he's shooting bad guys. And then there's, he's on the radio and there's a guy in the van out on the street. And the guy's on a computer and he's working away. And he's saying, oh, you know, run a bypass for me. You know, do this. Hack into the security cameras, what have you, right? And I asked myself the question, what if the guy in the van had to do the other guy's job? What happens if the guy in the van gets pulled out of his comfort zone and now he's the guy who has to be the door kicker and the trigger puller. He's the one who's on the run, who's being shot at, you know, and his life hanging by a thread. And that was the genesis of the character of Mark Dane as a guy who's a bit of a techie. He's a little bit of a nerd. I mean, he can kind of still handle himself in a fight. But like I say, he's not the toughest guy in the room and he has to kind of work for it. And I like heroes like that. I've always been a fan of characters like the two I always think of from movies is I always pick, pick out 
John McClane from Die Hard and in, Indiana Jones. And you look at those guys, they're both good at what they do. You know, McLean is a cop and he knows what he's doing. Indy is like a, an archaeologist and he's an intelligent guy. But they're never, they're never always the guys who kind of just walk through everything and, and come out untouched. They always come through their stories kind of bloody but unbowed. And you feel like they have earned it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a character who earned it. So that was the genesis of Mark Dane, is this, this sort of tech-savvy character in, uh, in these stories set in this kind of modern-day world. I wanted to write a techno-thriller that... Um, was inspired by the books that I used to read when I was a young man, when I was reading like Robert Ludlum and Ian Fleming and, and, and Tom Clancy, you know, these books in the kind of the, the 70s, 80s, 90s kind of era. I wanted to take the influences of those stories and say, okay, let's tell that kind of narrative, but let's put it today. Let's put it in this kind of 2020s. Let's tell a story that's through the lens of a kind of post-WikiLeaks, post-Edward Snowden, info security kind of, you know, technologically infested espionage story let's tell a narrative set in that world and these things kind of collided together and that was the genesis of the mark dane story fantastic so in the uh three books how has the uh evolution of the character and the situations uh changed oh he's i've I've kind of toughened him up a little bit as he goes through the books you know so in in the first novel his team uh, is killed around him and he's framed for you know he he kind of survives this attack on his on his unit uh, and when he comes back to headquarters, they're like, well, you're the only guy who survived, so you must be in on this. So there's a conspiracy about who's, who's really behind this. He goes on the run to... And that's kind of the, the, the propulsive elements of the first story in Nomad. And in the course of that narrative, he crosses paths with a, a private military contractor run by um, an African billionaire. Uh, and the organization is called Rubicon. And these guys are basically kind of a private organization run by this guy as a philanthropist, and he essentially has formed an intelligence network, but with no national loyalty. So they're not loyal to one, any one country. They just are trying to do the right thing in the world, you know, pushing back against mm-hmm. bad guys and, you know, and taking down terrorists wherever they find them. So Mark crosses paths with these guys who are also looking into the same situation. And by the end of Nomad, you know, he's, he's teamed up with them and uh, he's offered a job, but he's like, oh, I don't know if I really want to take that, if that's the job I want to do. In the second book... He's working for the United Nations, uh, in a, a real-life organization, actually, um, the, the Office of Nuclear, Nuclear Security, who check to see if you know, rogue nuclear weapons go missing or if people are trafficking in like, you know, radioactive material. Like, these people are out there every day you know, making sure this stuff doesn't get out into the world. And of course, in that story, he comes across a rogue nuclear device, so he helps the, the guys in Rubicon, this organization, to sort of uh, track that down. And by the end of that story, he's part of the Rubicon team. And in the third novel, as Ghost opens up, this is a story about um, offensive computer hacking. This is a story about bad guys, dangerous terrorist hackers using weaponizing social media and, and you know, computer technology to kind of foment a confrontation between North and South Korea. And again, Mark and the Rubicon team are, are drawn into that. And with each novel, what I'm trying to do is kind of evolve his character because I don't want him to be static. I don't want him to be the same guy he is right. in like book three or four as he is in book one. I want to try and show him evolving, growing. He's gradually growing into being the hero that he could be. You know, he was never tested. He was kind of a little bit lazy. He always took the kind of easy route in his life. And now he's been taken out of that position and he's been forced into the front line. And now he's, he's starting to grow into becoming... The, the action hero that he always could be. But it's, it's a gradual process and it's, a, it's an evolution. Do you find when you're writing uh, Dane that um, 
he takes on a life of his own and starts kind of making some decisions for you? I mean, you're writing and plotting it out and all, but he's a character. Do you find that he has a life of his own? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think that's true with, I think that's true with any character. You know, all of the characters a writer writes, they all stem from some element of yourself, right? Good and bad. And you draw from the world around you, but you also draw from your own experiences. Dane is a lot like me, you know, I am also sort of fascinated with, with tech geek hardware. And he grew up on a, on a housing estate in London, just like me. He came from the same kind of urbanite upbringing, just like me. I'm drawing from my own life mm -hmm. to kind of make him feel authentic. So I find that when he does, you know, for want of a better word, talk to me, it's kind of like I'm almost hearing my own voice reflected back to me. You know, he's this, he's the, the, the hero that I wish I could be, right? He's, uh, you know, he's, he's a lot more tougher and he sticks to it a little bit more. He's a bit more reckless than I would be, I think, in his situation. He takes a lot more risks. But, um, but yeah, he definitely has, his personality has evolved to the point now where, um, when I'm writing the story, I can see something evolving in the narrative. And I'm thinking that's not, that's not something he would do. You know, I, I'm not going right. to write that because that's not true to who he is. You know, it's a very crowded space you're in and congratulations and all the success you're having with the Dane novels. And it sounds to me like you've really carved out a niche for yourself in a really smart way. But with all of the, you know, all the competition out there and all of the plots and so much with the cybersecurity and the rogue nuclear devices and all of that, how do you, how do you make sure that nobody else is like doing the same story or similar stuff? How, do you have time to see what else uh, the other guys are doing? Or do you say, I don't want to know. I'll just do what I, I need to do. And do you ever find yourself finding like, wow, okay, that element's been used in another story. I mean, I see stuff from my, my own book and from my screenplay where somebody in the movie says some, some are mm -hmm. somewhat similar things and i'm like where'd they get that was my script submitted somewhere and they nicked it or is it just out there in the consciousness no i know exactly what i mean yeah you know it's there's kind of two things that are going on there is on the one hand yeah i, I do try to re read widely in my own genre so you know when other people are writing stuff is i'm, I'm kind of keeping one eye over my shoulder it's like well, what are other people doing are they telling this kind of story are they telling something that's similar to me i mean part of the reason that i wrote the mark dane novels was that when I first pitched Nomad, I mean, I, I actually sold the UK version of that in 2016. And I'd been writing it for maybe like two, two and a half years previously, just in between other projects. And I remember at the time, I was trying to fill a gap that, that there, wasn't, there wasn't a book for. Because I was going to publishers and I was saying, I want to write this sort of thing. I want to write these, you know, these novels. It's a modern day version of the, like the Robert Ludlum style books. It's got, a, got that kind of flavor to it. And I was told by a lot of publishers, people don't want to read that. That's, that's you know, thrillers, that's dated. It's, it's past, passe, right? You know, nobody wants to read a thriller unless it's like a period piece, like set in World War II or something like that. Right. And, I, and I was like, that's not the book I want to write. Uh, and, and for a few years, I mean, I, I honestly, I couldn't get arrested. I mean, as a, as, a, as a writer who had quite a bit of experience, I figured, you know, I'm sure I could get people to listen to me. I'm sure I could get, get my stuff on top of somebody's slush pile, you know, because I'm proving quantity. I was, I was figuring maybe somewhat arrogantly and stupidly, I was thinking that maybe I might be able to kind of get, get a couple of steps up the ladder. But um, the reverse was true is that I, I found it very, very difficult to get people interested in this kind of books because there wasn't anything like that at that point mm -hmm. uh, then along comes uh, a really great novel called i am pilgrim i don't know if you're familiar with that written by yeah. terry hayes uh, which completely blew the doors off the thriller industry at that point and it became like you know the and still is a massively selling book and suddenly people were like oh there is a market for this we've been telling you that there isn't a market but there is there's, there's people <laughs> out there who do want to read these kind of books and suddenly suddenly the the doors opened and um 
they were people were coming back to me saying, "Have you still got that book?" You know, because we've changed our minds now. Now we want something that is in the same kind of wheelhouse. Yeah. And I, and and then me and other writers, and you see people like Andrew Reed, Greg Hurwitz, Kimberly Howe, Adam Hamdi, all these other writers. We're all in that kind of space. We all came flooding in, going, "Finally, we can sell these books because we knew we wanted to get these books out." So now there's now that space, like you say, it is crowded, and definitely in the U.S. Because I mean, the U.S. Let's face it, is is the biggest thriller market in the world because there's a great hunger for that kind of narrative. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of terrific writers out there. It is difficult to keep abreast of all of that. So what I try to do is just tell the, the best story I can. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are similar elements out there. I mean, you know, I, I did a story about a suitcase nuclear bomb. And I know other people have done stories about that same kind of thing. But I try to put a different spin on it because it's in the execution. Right. It's all down to how you tell that story. You know, you can start from the same. You can get five writers in a room and say, start with this idea and you'll get five different stories because they'll all execute it in a very different way the the thing that i find the most problematic is not worrying about what my my fellow fiction writers are doing is worrying about what's going on in the real is with ghosts particularly uh when i first started writing that um the 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 the, the sort of conditions of the world geopolitics were going in one particular direction and everything changed halfway through writing the novel and i found the direction I was writing wasn't happening. I was thinking, I can't write this now. I'm going to have to change stuff. I'm going to, you know, real world is actually overwriting, over, you know, overtaking the fictional narrative I'm trying to create because these stories are set. I try to make it feel like the, the novel is set in the year that you read it. So if you're reading it in 2020, it feels like it could be happening right now. Got it's it. not too far in the future. I try to make the technology and the aspects and the geopolitics feel as close to the present day as I possibly can. But of course, once you do that, you put yourself at the mercy of real world events because things are moving so fast and stuff can happen, you know, in the space of a couple of days that suddenly, you know, what you think is a fictional idea is suddenly being is up there on CNN. So um, okay. that was that was quite troubling for me to do and still is like, you know, difficult. So I have to be I have to keep myself wired into all of the kind of the real world stuff to make sure that um, I'm not I don't lose a step. Let's spend a little time, if you don't mind, on some of your other works, because you're doing, to, in my opinion, the right thing that writers need to do is you're working across a lot of different formats and genres. And they're not easy because they all have their own set of templates and rules and nomenclatures and language and all that. So you've written some Star Trek, some Doctor Who, uh, 24 Warhammer, 40,000, Halo, Stargate. Uh, you've done screenplays, Star Trek, Voyager, Deuce X, uh, Disney Infinity, Star Wars. Battlestar Galactica. How how did you make the transition? How did you walk quickly walk across the bridge and get involved and really be able to get your hands around and understand those uh, properties that you are representing? Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all writing, right? You know, if you write like long form, short form movies, TV games, right? It's all writing. It's all about creating compelling characters and interesting narratives. When you're doing stuff, working in somebody else's IP, like so, for example. Um, just recently I did a novel uh, based on the, the new Star Trek television series and that involves me having to work with the people who are making that TV show you know I come up with a narrative and I say here's the storyline I want to tell in your world you know what do you think of that and then we have a conversation about it and we make sure that everything kind of dovetails as closely as possible so that people who are fans of that intellectual property can pick up the book and go well this is something that feels like it's part of that world it doesn't feel disconnected it doesn't feel untrue to those characters in the world and that's the key thing you know understand the texture the 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 the, t the tone of the characters if you're going to write in a fictional world 
what do the people in that world sound like? What do they look like? How do they behave? And you have, as long as you carry that on in just the same way that you would if you were working on that TV show as like a scriptwriter, it's just the same thing. You know, you have to make sure you have that, you have that understanding and the mindset. In terms of working on um, different uh, actual th- um, media, like in terms of the difference between like working on a novel uh, and a video game, that's a very different set of tools that you bring with it. I often talk about the the writer's toolkit. I always say that like, you know, you have one tool for doing a short story, one tool for a novel, one tool for this, one tool for that. But you need to have a big toolkit because if you can only do one kind of writing, I think you kind of lose out. Whereas if you're trying to do different kinds of writing, you will learn different skills. You will get better at, at the general skill of writing. And then you can fold that back into whatever piece of writing you happen to be doing at the time. Since we're, we're tight on time and you've been fantastic and I have so much respect for what you're saying and, and all your work and the success across genres because it's not easy. Um, what would be your advice to our listeners out there who feel that, I, you know, everybody has a story inside and it's a matter of, you know, you go out there and start writing and at page eight, you're like, now what do I do? What would be your advice to people who want to embark on that journey of writing? Because it's not, if you're in it for the money, look for something else. And uh, I always say, it's not something you want to do. It has to be something you have to do. Yeah, definitely. I feel like if it's it's something you're compelled to, you know. But the, the advice that I always give anybody is just two words. Finish it. Whatever you do, if you're doing a thing, you know, I, I often talk to, to newbie writers and they'll say, oh, I started writing a story and I got halfway through it. and I didn't really like it, so I stopped. And now I'm doing another thing and I haven't finished that. And I say, look, you know, if you were a baker, nobody wants you to half bake a cake, right? If you were a plumber, nobody wants you to half plumb a sink in. Look at your story in the same way. You know, write the story to the end. Even if you get to the end and you're not happy with it, you have improved as a writer because the fact that you can tell you're not happy about it means that you are now a better writer than you were at the beginning of the story. That's how you earn your experience. That's how you level up, to use a game term, right, as a writer. You get better by doing. You have to exercise that muscle because if you just constantly, you know, start and never finish and start and never finish, you are not a writer. You're just, you're just a dilettante. You're just playing at it. And I think that's the best advice I can give to anybody. Just sit down, write your story, and then write the next one, and you will get better and you will get better and better and better. I think that is fantastic advice. And I know some successful people in the business and you know what, they, they trash so many of their projects, they get halfway through and they move to something else. And these are people who are really talented and they don't, they don't finish them. And I'm always thinking like, I'd rather have a couple of things that I finished than a bunch of things that I didn't. And I agree with your advice uh, a thousand percent. So I hope everybody listening out there, if you're considering writing, that you uh, take it across the finish line and then see where you are, as James has suggested. So James Swallow, the incredible author of uh, Ghost and uh, the Mark Dane series and so many other great books, where can our listeners find out more about, where can I get Ghost? Where can they find more about you and uh, what's next for you? Well, Ghost is being published in the U.S. by uh, Macmillan, the imprint Forge Books. You can find that there. If you want to uh, come and see more about me and my work and also get some uh, free downloadable fiction, including a, a free Mark Dane uh, novella, just come find me at jswallow.com. All of my stuff is up there. Feel free to navigate around that. Uh, if you want to come and talk to me online, I'm, I'm usually on Twitter. If you find me at jmswallow, I'm always happy to chat to people there. Uh, I love talking about writing. I, could, I can go on for hours and hours about how much I love my job. So uh, yeah, those are the best places to find me. 
Well, you're a lucky man and you've earned your luck and you do a great job and I have so much respect for you and I thank you so much for being my guest on Guys Guys Radio and I hope we can do it again. Oh, my pleasure, Robert. Robert Manny's The Guys Guys Guide to Love is a fast-paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guys Guys Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, two interesting interviews with two fascinating guests, Gerald Zimmerman and James Swallow. So what did we learn today? Well, Gerald's book about the called Relentless, about the mobster business practices, I think we learned that whatever type of enterprise you're involved in, and regardless of which side of the law it's on, whether you're IBM or the Cosa Nostra or or a drug cartel, you're going to have to have an organization, you're going to have to understand your brand, and you're going to have to have some codes of behavior where people understand what their roles are in the organization and how they get rewarded and how they get punishment and how they can continue to have their livelihood as part of this group, whether it's a corporation or it's something more nefarious. So interesting stuff by Gerald Zimmerman. James Swallow, what did we learn? Well, he's an incredible writer, New York Times bestselling writer. His series that's really done well is the Mark Dane series, and it's kind of like a Jason Bourne take, and it's very interesting. Of course, a lot of differences there, but fast-paced and interesting and very current. And what we learned from James, I think, was about uh, what it takes to be a writer and uh, how it's all about story, whether you're writing some of the things that James writes, and he's all over the place. He writes, and I say this in a very good way, respectfully, fiction, TV, radio, journalism, new media, and even video games. Well, at the core of all of those disciplines is story. You have to understand story, and in most cases, what story represents is what does the main character want, and why can't he or she get it, and a series of conflicts. So whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you have to have a foundation of story. The other thing I think we learned from James is that to become a writer, it's something that you have to do much more than just wanting to do it. And I think a lot of people have a story or two inside them, and uh, a lot of times people have problems putting it down on paper, and maybe they'll write a story and it turns out to be about them, and they get to about page eight and they throw up their hands and they didn't realize that it takes a lot more discipline than that to write a, a really good book, and everybody thinks, oh, my life's really interesting. Well, it may be to you, but to other people, in many cases, it's not, and I learned that the hard way myself. I wrote a book about... Uh, kind of a startup when I first started out writing and uh, I had the it was written in the first person and a lot of people thought was that you and uh, it wasn't exactly me but um, I was very close to the material and uh, what I learned though I got rejected about a hundred times but along the way throughout the process I would uh, get no response when I submitted queries and then I start to get a one-line response and then a couple of questions and then a request for as I kept uh, updating the manuscript and then submitting to different places, 
I started to get questions about can I see the first three chapters and then the entire manuscript and then I attended a lot of writer conferences and all of that and at a certain point I realized you know what this book was a, a success because it taught me how to write a book how to write a novel so I took a step back and I came up with another idea organically about men and women and the great communication chasm between them and that book is the guy's guy's guide to love which did get picked up and that is kind of the source material for a lot of what i do here on the show on guys guys radio so the guy's guy's guide to love is about two men in advertising competing for love sex power and money in the city where they play for keeps new york city it takes place in the world of advertising it's got a lot of savvy women and flawed men and it's about love and redemption and revenge and I'm very proud of the story because a lot of people like it and it's a lot of fun and nobody's really written a book just like this and by the name a lot of people thought oh this is a dating guide well it's not really a dating guide but in some ways it is but it's a it's a novel so I want to get my perspective and what we could do to kind of bring the sexes closer together in terms of communication through the power of story hence the guys guys guide to love anyway we're here on Guys Guys Radio every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific Time on KCAA in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10:50 a.m. The podcast and my YouTube drop on Thursdays. The podcast you can catch on over 25 platforms, basically wherever you consume your podcasts. We're on Pandora, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Apple Podcasts, and just just about everywhere. Uh, that you consume your podcast and also the YouTube just go to Robert Manny M-A-N-N-I and you'll get to my YouTube channel called Guys Guys TV uh, and there you can watch the shows if you'd like the interview portion of the shows at least so we're here every Wednesday evening and then the show the actual KCAA radio show also is replayed here in Southern California uh, Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific time so great show today we've got a lot lined up for 2021 i know everybody's still has a lot of anxiety about the about the year with uh you know the election and covid and the economy and so many problems and challenges that people have but i truly believe that you know nothing lasts forever and this too shall pass as my mom always says and we're going to get through this but the way to get through it the fastest way to get through it and the best way to get through it is if we go through it together so, Guys Guys Radio, thanks so much for your support. I'll see you next week, and as I always like to say, Guys Guys, finish first. <laughs> <laughs>